were affected just hearing their experience, and then as a result, did whatever they had done. I, I think we do this all the time, right? I was thinking about it, actually, uh, we're using Zoom right now. And uh, the way that we did that was we were hearing about how other churches were dealing with this crisis and what they were using. We already had Facebook that we were using, and thank God that that was all set up. But we learned from others. Uh, actually, there were churches in China that were ahead of us, probably a month ahead of us in terms of using these things. And so we learned from them and, and read about how effective it was, even though it's not the same as being together. And as a result, we set up Zoom. So we are using this morning both Facebook Live and Zoom. And if you want to be on the Zoom call and you don't have the, the link, you can actually uh, uh, text on the Facebook, direct message on Facebook or other, otherwise, and we'll, uh, we'll get you connected. But it came because someone shared how it worked, and we adapted that. And we do that all the time. Matter of fact, this is how God works. This is how God works in our lives. This is how God brings us his, his solution, his ultimate solution. It's through the testimony of others as they share what's happened in their lives and as they share the, the truth of God's word behind that. And what we're going to see in this story today is that's the experience of Jethro. Um, Jethro hears, he's influenced by the, Moses' story. He ends up coming to believe. He's included, and then he gets involved. It's just a wonderful picture of what the Christian life looks like. So let's pray. Then look at God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active, that we are not alone. We might feel isolated in this time, but you are there. You are everywhere. And Lord, you want to speak to us in a real way. And so I pray for all of us here, um, whether physically present or via the internet, Lord, speak to us. And may your word bring life and truth and help. And may you be glorified in this, we pray. Help me, Lord, to serve well to serve you well, to serve your precious people, to serve everyone listening uh, whom you love. We, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 18, starting in verse 1. I'll re- <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I'll read the whole chapter. My voice works. <clears throat> Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. 
And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you? from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their, their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at times. Any hard case brought to Moses, but any small matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. God's word from Exodus chapter 18. This wonderful story brings actually this past section of Scripture to a close in a really helpful way. We learn in this how telling our story of stories of God's deliverance has an impact on those not yet a part of God's people. We learn how telling our stories of God's deliverance has an impact on those not yet God's people. Through our story of God's deliverance and His deliverance from adversity, others are influenced, included, and involved in God's story. This is a picture of how God includes others and involves them in what he's doing in his story. So let's take a look at, at this passage and what we learn. First, just a little bit of background to see how this passage fits into all of Exodus. Um, it functions in an important way in the whole storyline. So as we're going through Exodus, uh, we've, we've done 18 chapters so far. And these first 18 chapters are really about the deliverance from Egypt. And then they're the way in the wilderness as they're learning those wilderness lessons. And ultimately what's going to happen in 19 is they are going to be led to Sinai, Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, Sinai they're going to uh, ratify this covenant, this new covenant that, for them in Moses. And so 19 through 40, the rest of Exodus will, will be about life in this covenant. But 1 through 18 is about them being delivered from Egypt and their hardships, learning to, to depend on God. Uh, and God working through them. And so this chapter serves as, as a transition point. Actually, the last time we heard about Jethro was back in chapter 4. Um, 
and, and then, of course, earlier when Moses goes to him. And so that's the last time we've heard from Jethro before any of these things happened here. And so Jethro is a bookend on either end of, of God's deliverance from Egypt, his deliverance from their hardships, and God's bringing of them to Sinai. And that's on purpose. Uh, he's used that way. Now, of course, he really was involved in those ways, but Moses chose to mention him this way to bookend this section of Scripture. I can give you another uh, insight to why that's true. Uh, if you look in chapter 18, verse 5, I don't know if you noticed it, but Jethro comes to Moses when they are encamped at the mountain of God. That's Sinai. So chapter 18 happens when they're already at Sinai, but if we go forward to chapter 19, in the beginning, it says this, verse uh, 1 and 2, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. So chapter 19 is when they get to the mountain. But chapter 18, which is a chapter before 19, they're already at the mountain. So why? Well, Moses chose to move this story, which happens when they're already at the mountain, a little later, earlier in the story, to bookend the section of Scripture and to bring us some important lessons in that bookending. And so he uses Jethro as that, as that highlight point and accomplishes some important things in doing that. Um, so if you read through this section, it really, it's, it's the voice of Jethro that gives us uh, the reflection on what God has done. And really Moses, Moses recounts to Jethro what God has done. So both Moses recounting to Jethro and Jethro's reflection on that is a picture of how we should understand 1 through 18. That's what Moses is doing here. Uh, by putting this story earlier. Um, and so, in verses 8 through 9, we read about this, this interchange. Uh, it says, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So Moses is retelling and, and really summarizing the whole story here as he tells Jethro. And, and just so listen to what he says, how he describes it. God delivers them from Pharaoh and from Egypt. God allows hardship along the way. God delivers them from that hardship. That's his summary. So there's the hardship of the suffering in Egypt. God delivers them. There's the hardship along the way in the wilderness, the thirst, the hunger, the Amalekites attacking them. God delivers them from that. They learn in their need, in this crisis. They're actually, they go through multiple crises, not just one like we are. They go through multiple crises. They learn in those crises to trust in the Lord, to set their heart on the Lord himself, to trust him to deliver them, but to find actually in their waiting that the thing that they ought to want the most is God himself. Man does not live by bread alone, right? Jesus, in reflecting on the wilderness experience, says that this is, and he's just quoting from Deuteronomy, that God's purpose in the wilderness is to teach us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Our relationship with God is where we find life. 
And so Moses is recounting what's gone on and really highlighting that lesson. Now, of course, he's writing this for the people of God uh, as Israel when they get, are getting ready to go into the promised land. He wants them to know this lesson. But this lesson is throughout Scripture, right? We see it throughout Scripture. It, it's really what it means to be God's people. And I would submit it, it's what it means to be human even. To face adversity. And in our adversity, in our dire need, find the Lord. Find that the Lord is the one who delivers us. That the Lord is the ultimate answer even beyond our sense of need. Our greater need is God himself. This is the experience of humanity. And I would submit this is what, what uh, mankind, what humanity has been designed for. And so it's here in Exodus, and it's captured for our good today to remind us of this truth. And, and this is true for all people. This is true for God's people. This is true for Jesus. Jesus himself had to go through the same thing, had to go through hardship, and in his hardship learned to depend on God, and through learning to depend on God, be perfected, actually. It's amazing. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, so speaking of God the Father, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Amazing. So it's speaking of the Father who wants to bring many sons, this is sons and daughters, of course, to glory. He wants to bring us to the promised land. He wants to bring us to the place. He wants us to, to make us as he originally designed us to be, to be holy and dependent on him and, and glorious as those made in his image. He wants to bring us to glory, but how, how does he get there? How does he get us there? Well, of course, it's fitting that Jesus, God in the flesh, the uh, eternal Son of God as the perfect man, should go through that suffering. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's amazing. And, and, and we should say, well, what does this mean? Jesus wasn't perfect? Well, yes and no. Jesus was perfect in his holiness and glory. And, and so he couldn't really improve in, in his moral goodness and in his glory. But as a human being, he wasn't perfect until he accomplished what humans were designed for, what humans were made for. Humans were made to trust in God and go through adversity and to find in God all that they need. So he had to be perfected in his human experience to go through suffering and learn dependence and live out dependence on God to be proven in a sense, per, uh, complete. So perfect can mean uh, perfect as far as flawless, but it also carries this idea of being complete and whole and accomplished and finished. And so Christ had to finish the work of being human by going through suffering, experiencing suffering, and depending on God. And thank God he did it perfectly. He went through suffering, and he never failed. He trusted God throughout it all and through the very, very, very worst suffering imaginable as he took on himself our sins as the, the flawless, holy one, God in the flesh, bore our sins, and bore the, the holy justice of God on the cross, paid for our sins fully, bore the whole wrath of God fully. There's no greater suffering than what he went through. 
and he went through it all for our sake, so that through faith in him, through, through looking to him, God the Son in the flesh, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, we might have life and strength, and we in our need, in our dire need, in our crises, could learn to depend on him and find grace to endure. Jesus said this, John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's gone through suffering. He's made it through to the other side. He's victorious. He paid for our sins. We're forgiven. Our greatest need has been taken care of. He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And he's with us always. He has overcome, and in him we find help as we face adversity. He is the means by which we are delivered, just as Moses recounted to Jethro. We face hardship, God delivers us. And it's so important to get this, so important for us to understand this. And here it is again in Exodus 18 to remind us. Sometimes we get things terribly wrong in our understanding of following Jesus. We think that we're signing up for one thing, we find out that it's not quite what we expected. In the story of, of Pilgrim's Progress, the famous book by John Bunyan, and I would recommend actually in this time of, of uh, quarantine, maybe you read that book, Pilgrim's Progress, a, a classic. But in the story, he speaks of uh, the main character, Christian. And Christian uh, is someone who's going to the celestial city, uh, so it's an allegory, it's heaven. He's on his way to heaven. He's left his home, all the comforts of home, because he realizes that the celestial city is, is ultimately where he needs to be. And along the, the way, he meets a man named Pliable early on in the journey. He convinces Pliable to go with him. And, and he tells Pliable of all the rewards and blessings of the celestial city. And Pliable is very excited. So listen to some of the dialogue. Pliable says, uh, as he speaks about the celestial city, Well said, what things are they? Christian says, there is an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given us, that we may inhabit the kingdom forever. Well said, and what else? There are crowns and glory to be given us, and garments that will make us shine like the sun and the firmament of heaven. The Bible says, this is very pleasant, and what else? There will be no more crying, nor sorrow, for he that is the owner of the place will wipe all tears from our eyes. And what company shall we have there? There you shall be with cherubims and seraphims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look on. There also you shall meet with thousands upon thousands that have gone before us to the place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy, everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in his presence with acceptance forever. In a word, there we shall see the elders with their golden crowns. There we shall see the holy virgins with their golden harps. There we shall see men that by the word were cut in pieces, burnt in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in seas, for the love that they bear to the Lord of the place, all well and clothed with immortality as with a garment. The Bible says the hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart. And then it says, Now I saw in my dream that just as they had ended this talk, they drew near to a very miry slough that was in the middle of the plain, and they, being heedless, did both fall suddenly into the bog. The name of the slaw was despond. It's a depression, despondence. 
Here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, being grievously bedaubed with the dirt. And Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. Then said Pliable, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Truly, said Christian, I, I do not know. At this, Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, Is this the happiness you have told me of all this while? If we at such... Uh, have such ill speed on our first setting out, what may we expect betwixt this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life. You shall possess the brave country alone for me. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two, got out of the mire on that side of the slaw, which was next to his own house. So away he went, and Christian saw him no more. Pliable in the story thought he would sign up for blessing and comfort and ease. And when he found out that there was more to the story, he hightailed it out and went home as fast as possible. Exodus 18, in this book ending with Jethro and Moses' recounting of what's gone on, is for the pliable in all of us. We love the mighty deliverance from Egypt. We love the peace and prosperity of the promised land. And we may think that following Jesus means that the kingdom of God comes right now in every way if we just would simply believe enough. That life is truly good and you merely need to ask and receive to have all these blessings. But God has something better for us. He has a process of facing adversity and learning that God himself is what we truly need and ultimately what we truly and supremely want. I hope that makes sense. It's so important for us to understand this. I know that in this crisis, God's doing many things, many more than we can number, but one of the things he is doing is just what we see in Exodus 18. He's allowing us to go through hardship that we might learn to depend on his deliverance in his time and in his way. And ultimately, that deliverance is not just to answer our needs, our health needs, our financial needs, but to answer our ultimate need, which is to have a relationship with God, to live before Him, to find in Him our greatest delight, the greatest answer, life itself. So before we go further, just to understand what Moses is doing here in Exodus 18 and what God wants to remind us about in following Him. So let's continue. We see in the story actually somebody who is impacted in a way greater than pliable. We get to look at the life of Jethro. We see him observing and seeing these things and embracing all that following God means. Now Jethro, we learned earlier in chapter 4, uh, actually chapter 2 I think it is, uh, that he was a priest of Midian. And so Jethro was a man who would have believed in God but probably didn't quite understand who God was and probably didn't understand that God is the supreme God, the only true God. He perhaps was a priest uh, in the service of worshiping God, the true God, but also other gods in some way. And so his understanding isn't quite right. It's there, there's good things there, but he's not there all the way. And in hearing Moses' story, hearing both from a distance and then in person, it takes him to the next level of faith. And we see that in the passage. 
we've already read uh, that. And if you look uh, in chapter 18, verses 7 through 11, it recounts that. And it says at the end, in verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Now I know that, that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Speaking of the Egyptians and the, the false gods behind the Egyptians. God has proven to Jethro that he is greater than all gods. That he alone is the ultimate God, the supreme God, the only God. And, and, and how does Jethro know that? He wasn't there. He's heard about it from a distance. It says as he's coming, he's already heard about it. But he hears it from Moses, his son-in-law. And he experiences that truth. And now he can say, now I know. Isn't that amazing? It's not firsthand knowledge. It's through Moses' story that Jethro encounters God. He sees the hand of God in this deliverance. He sees the superiority of God. He comes to faith in God as a result. Before he might have heard, he might have wondered, but he wasn't sure. But something's changed here when he listens to Moses' story. From hearing to knowing. And this is instructive for us. Because this is how God works. Right? None of us were there when Jesus rose from the dead. How did we come to know this story of deliverance? We heard from others. We read in the Word. And we can say truly, hearing that, as God speaks to us, the power of the Holy Spirit, now I know He is greater than all other things. And our story, by the way, is way more dramatic and important than the deliverance from Egypt, as great as that was. Because our story is of His complete and full deliverance in Christ. God shows his, his power, His superiority over sin and death and Satan to Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for us and His victorious resurrection over death on the third day. That is our story of deliverance, ultimately. And we, we can know that and live in that, that truth. That is for us to believe and receive and, and it's such an important thing to, to emphasize, Right? It's not just about hearing the story. It's actually coming to experience that story. To hear it in the power of the Spirit and to say, yes, I believe. I grew up hearing this story. But it wasn't until I came to the place where I responded, where I embraced it as the story for me, when His death on the cross was not just for sins in general, but for my sins. And His resurrection wasn't just for life in some a way that was nebulously understood, but life for me and for us. To say, now I know. That was Jethro's experience and that is our experience as we hear the gospel and the others' stories. This is how God works. This is how people are influenced and how they come to be included through hearing and experiencing this. And, and, and it's very natural, of course, to share these stories. We see it in Scripture. Uh, when Andrew encounters Jesus, what does he do? He goes and he gets his brother Peter. He brings him to Jesus so Peter can experience that. Uh, Philip experiences Jesus in John chapter 1. He goes and gets Nathaniel. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 encounters Jesus, goes to her village and says, let me tell you about the one who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Christ? And she tells the village, and the whole village comes out and meets Jesus 
And Jesus goes and stays with them. They encounter him through the story of the Samaritan woman. That's what we see in Exodus 18. This is instructive for us. So let me ask you, certainly this is true at all times, but in this time of, of more poignant need, are you sharing your story with others? Are you sharing your story? Are you telling them about what God has done? It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't need a theology degree to do it. You can just say simple things like, I'm grateful for God who's given me peace amidst this crisis. It can be that simple. You can tell others, I'm, I'm finding strength to face the future because God has been there for me through Jesus. Just a simple way. Tell your story. However you want to say it in whatever words you want, it doesn't have to be more than that. Tell your story that others hear because this is the means which God uses that it might become their story, that they might join in. This is what happens with Jethro. And it's wonderful to, to see what happens with Jethro beyond his coming to this place where he embraces this for himself. He, he also experiences inclusion in this passage. So following on in verse 12, he responds to this. And then it says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So Jethro comes to believe. He says, now I know. And, and what does he want to do? He wants to worship. And so he brings a sacrifice. And that at this point in the history of God's people, the sacrifices, so animals that were, were the best of your herd, offered in, in sacrifice, who gave their lives, really, uh, in sacrifice, were a way to worship God. And, and, and there's two things going on here. A burnt offering is most likely a sacrifice of atonement. And so Jethro is bringing uh, one of the best from his from his flock and sacrificing that, that sheep um, or whatever animal it might be. And that animal's life is given in his place, really. It's speaking of the fact that he needs a sacrifice. He needs a way to, to have his sins covered. And so it's an expression of that. He's bringing a burnt offering to God, saying, I look to you, the one true God, as the only one who can forgive my sins and bring me into your presence forgiven and clean. But he also brings sacrifices, and these are likely sacrifices of thanksgiving, thanksgiving offerings. So, so it's an offering of seeking the Lord, depending on the Lord for atonement and forgiveness. And of course, worship must include that. When we are touched by God, we come, we, we trust Him, we celebrate that He's forgiven. Now the sacrifice is Jesus. That's already been offered perfectly. We don't offer anything beyond that. But we rejoice and we remember what He's done as we worship. And then secondly, it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He's, he's bringing uh, probably other animals to sacrifice. Bread as well could be offered in a thanksgiving offering. Then that sacrifice was actually to be offered, then shared with everybody. Uh, it's a wonderful picture. that as we come to the Lord in worship, we share our resources together and enjoy what God has done for us together. And it's a wonderful picture here because he does that. And, it, and who shows up at this meal? They actually would have a, a meal together. Deuteronomy 12 talks about this, that, that you're to eat before the Lord when you have these thanksgiving offerings. It's, it's to be a celebration. And, and so who shows up at this meal together? Aaron? Right? Aaron came, verse 12. Aaron came with all the elders. Can you put that verse up? Actually, that would be good for folks to see. Aaron came with all the elders. Verse 12. Um, so Exodus 8, 12. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law. And there's one other person there before God. Wow. Uh, there's one other, actually, 
verse we'll get to later in chapter 24 that, that is very similar to this. Let me read it, and if you can switch to that and project that. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. It's after they had established the covenant. It's the same sorts of folks. Now, Jethro's not there, but others. So listen, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, um, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So they're actually, they go up part of the mountain, and they're having a meal together. This is the Aaron and Moses and Aaron and Aaron's son, so it's the priests, and all the elders. And God himself is manifest there in a, a physical, visible way. It's amazing. And they eat in God's presence because they are now included in relationship with God through this covenant. And, and I think it's on purpose that we see Jethro doing that and then we see this later because for Jethro, it's a picture of Jethro not only being influenced and embracing truth, but now he's included fully in the people of God. That's important to understand. See, when we come to, to faith in the Lord, we're included. We're brought into the family. We're brought into the very presence of God. We're included and brought into His love and, and living under His forgiveness and His blessing. And there's an important aspect to this as well. Chapter 18 follows chapter 17, right? And what happened in chapter 17, the second half? Battle with the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites are our foreign people, distantly related to the Jews. And we saw that they are these brutal enemies of the Jewish people. Uh, unprovoked, they're attacking them. They're taking advantage of them. And God fights for his people. He fights for his people um, because he loves his people. He fights for us, his people. And he wipes out the Amalekites. And we might get the idea in reading that story that God somehow is xenophobic. You know, that God loves Israel and everybody else. No, nope, you're bad guys. We're going to wipe you out. That's not at all what's going on. And it's emphasized by what happens with Jethro. Jethro is not Jewish. He's a Midianite. And this story is here to see the heart of God. That God is inclusive in the sense that he wants all and anybody who would come to him, who would turn from sin and come to him to come and be fully included. So Jethro is there. He's fully included. Just as what's going to happen in chapter 24, he's included as a foreigner. This is the heart of God. And, and the fact is, actually, that we are all foreigners before God, Jew or Gentile. If you think about it, God alone is holy. He alone is true and always good. He alone is creator and sustainer. We are creatures. And we are fallen creatures, yet he is holy, holy, holy. We were all strangers and foreigners before God. And yet in his amazing love, he rescues us. He redeems us. He provides for us. He fully includes us. He welcomes us to his table. And even more than this, he makes us one with himself. John chapter 17, it's amazing as Jesus is praying for those who would come to faith and be part of the people of God. He prays that they may all be one, it says, verse 21. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be 
in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's beyond comprehension. And we'll never be God, but we are made one with Him through Christ. Just as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one with one another, we enter into this relationship. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's amazing to be so included. And this can't help but have an effect on us. To make us like God Himself. God's people, rightly living in God, are naturally inclusive like He is. Not exclusive. They are naturally oriented to embrace those different from themselves and welcome them in. Those that are very different yet are the same in that they have turned away from self and sin to the Lord. So in some ways, he's exclusive because there's only one way to be close to him, and that's on his terms. Repenting, turning, and trusting in Jesus, receiving that forgiveness, trusting in him for power to obey and walk with him. But it's all of grace through faith dependent on Jesus. But it's inclusive because all and any are invited, and through Jesus come close, come in, and enjoy fellowship. And so we as God's people are naturally oriented to embrace and drop people in, not to exclude, but to say, come in. He invites you. Turn. Why hold on to those things that keep you out? Turn and, and come in. And, and to be comprised of all sorts of people. I remember when this first hit me as a new believer, I came to Christ right at the end of my high school. And high school for me had been um, all, I mean, it was, I had a lot of great experiences, but, but a lot of it was just about being clicky. I don't know, that's maybe what your high school experience was like. Everyone was in cliques. And uh, it was all about being exclusive, right? My group is the group. And if you don't dress and act like us or whatever, um, we're going to exclude you. And we're going to ridicule you. And so you have all these cliques. I was in, I don't, we didn't have a name for ourselves, but we were kind of like the football rowdy jock cliques. And then there was like the preppy jock clique. And then there was the nerdy non-jock clique, the band clique and all that. And sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody. But, but the, all those other cliques. And so we, we, you know, we made fun of those other guys. Um, and we thought we were great. You know, we're, we're, of course, that's how it always works, right? You're in, in the clique, you think you're, you're the greatest. Uh, we were the, you know, the great football jock clique. Um, anyhow, I came to Jesus and started having all these friends. And there was one point, I remember, I was sitting there in some gathering, and I looked around at all these people, and I thought, these guys, like, there's a, that guy's a nerd. I never would have been friends with him before. And this one's that's a, that's a preppy jock guy, whatever. And I just realized, like, these are my dear friends. I love them. And we love being together. And we're all different. And, and, and of course, that experience grew and grew as I got to know the body of Christ. And there's just this, this impact that God's inclusion of us has on us to embrace others. And so, in light of this, in light of Jethro's experience, let, let me just ask you, are, do you know first that you are fully included? Most importantly, you are fully included in Jesus. You're welcome to the table through Christ, belonging to him through simply through faith, simply in him. You receive forgiveness. You're invited in. You're included. Do you know you're included? Do you see yourself that way? And then secondly, are you including others in light of that? Are, are there any people out there that you're excluding? Certainly believers. Are there any believers that maybe they're different than you and you're excluding them? Is there any clique that you're in that you need to change that clique or get out of? Because they're not being inclusive in the way that the Lord is. This is how we live out this, this reality. 
how he includes us. Finally, and hopefully quickly, involved. So Jethro is influenced, he's included, and then he gets involved. So the second half of the chapter, um, he gets involved. He advises Moses on how to deal with what he's doing. He's a good father-in-law, but it's more than that because now he's joined the people of God, and so he's a real uh, answer to Moses' problem. See, Moses is dealing with a dire need. Now, Moses has experienced the other dire needs everyone has, but as a leader, he's experiencing another one, and that is the burden of leadership. And, and he's trying to do it all himself. And, and Jethro watches him, and, and he's there from morning till evening, judging the people. Now, judging uh, doesn't mean just judicial judging. It means teaching, instructing, leading, helping. So it's, the whole, it's basically being a leader. That's the Old Testament word for judge is a leader. Um, and so that's what he's doing, and he's doing it. He's the only one. And Jethro's like, you're, you're crazy. Stop this. This is not good, is what he says. And so he's an answer to this. And, and, it, and it's so important just to stop and observe this lesson here because all of us, whether we're a leader or not, can be where Moses was at that point. We can all feel overwhelmed with too much responsibility. We can feel too much burden to bear, too many decisions to make, too much work to do, too many people depending on us, too much competency to maintain, too much learning to keep up, too much care to give. And when you're in a leadership role, that, that is all the more intense, whether it's a parent or a boss or a church leader. And Moses is in this situation, and Jethro gets involved with his insight and gifts, and he says, Moses, stop doing this. You need to delegate. You need to find able men, men of character and ability, and delegate to them. Stop being the hero, Moses, and delegate. It really is a leader's bane to bear the burden alone. And often people that have gifts of leadership or in roles of responsibility are prone that way because part of how they got there is they take on responsibility. But it is really a problem when they don't recognize they cannot do it alone, and actually it's not good. It doesn't honor God. It doesn't promote the health of the group that they lead, and certainly in the church. Bad polity, polity is a word for, for governmental structure, bad polity in the name of, quote, leadership or pastoral ministry can get people into a lot of trouble. A healthy church, a healthy organization, bears the burden together in appropriate ways. Of course, we see this in the church. Early on, Acts chapter 6, that they're dealing with the burden of feeding the widows. And they recognize this doesn't make sense to have the apostles, those who were, that were responsible for teaching the word and, and, and leading in prayer, to be handling these other needs. And so they appoint deacons to lead that. And then, of course, the deacons are not working alone. They would have had teams as well to do the work. Ephesians chapter 4 makes it very clear that pastors' jobs are to equip the church to do the work. They are not to do the work. Certainly not alone. There's a role they have. But the church is to do the work. And delegate in line with God's word here in Exodus 18, as well as other, elsewhere, Acts 6, Ephesians 4, so forth. There's blessing. When we feel, fail to delegate, there's trouble. We will burn ourselves out. We will leave organization in the state of immaturity and dependence on us and none of us are indispensable 
we don't want to leave a church or an organization dependent on us. We want to create health and share the load as it delegates. Uh, and so we as a church are committed to this. This lesson in Exodus 18, we, I think we've taken to heart. We want to grow in it as well. And it, and it wasn't always the case. When I first started, I know I took a lot of burden on myself and started to realize this just isn't good. And so we're committed to this, and, and I think we all want to have this attitude. We don't want to be like Moses in that place, like, hey, i got to stay in control of this. And if you think about it, you know, for Moses, he was the most qualified. That's always the temptation, is that if I delegate, the quality will go down. And that may be true in, in, in the short run, but over the long run, the quality will go up, because you'll be more fruitful. And for all of us in whatever ministry we're in, we need to have that attitude. It can be easy to kind of want to have it nice and, and tight and efficient, and, and yet we create dependence on ourselves versus a healthy group. And so we want to create uh, ministries where we bring in people, we include people, we delegate, we disciple, we prepare to hand off the baton. And this is our commitment here as a church. Um, it's wonderful to see people raised up to take over things or to send them out. Uh, and by the way, we've done this a lot, and we've probably sent too many out. We're glad to send people out on church plants and elsewhere. But at this point in time, we need more people to come in, to join in and take over different leadership roles. We, and I can tell you at some other point the different roles we need help with. We just need people more, more people participating in certain things. And, and we need that, but we're also, I'm also very grateful for the, the many that already serve. We are really blessed that way. But there's still a need here. And, and I just, again, want to speak this week to our young people, that you would know clearly that there will be no boomer blocking going on in this church. Um, that we are committed to raising up Gen X, and Millennials, and Gen Z, and whatever comes after that. Uh, we will not block. We will create room. If you, if you are available, uh, we will find a place and way for you to serve, and it will be our joy to pass the baton to next generations as, as God leads them. Um, so if you are not a boomer, this is not a boomer church. This is not your parents' church. This is your church. This is God's church. So hear the lesson of Exodus 18 and hear our commitment to have you step up and to get involved. In conclusion, what a picture of, of the Christian life, what a picture of the church we get here from Jethro. We learn of God's ways in allowing us to face adversity and then delivering us that this is the pattern of life and it's for good. We learn about God's ways of using our stories to influence that they might be included and involved this is god's way he's good to give us exodus 18 let's pray lord we thank you for these truths and i thank you for your precious people thank you for your word and i pray lord you stir us up in these truths equip us encourage us and use us to walk in these ways we pray in christ's name